Thank you, Amy. Well, I get the uh, great pleasure of uh, introducing our special guest, Dr. Daniel Brown. And uh, he uh, worked with Pastor Jack Hayford in Los Angeles at Church on the Way as the college pastor. And uh, then he planted a church in Aptos, California, called the Coastlands. And uh, we've been very influenced by him ever since. Uh, He planted a church out, out of the Coastlands. Uh, called uh, the Coastlands as well, but eventually it changed its name to Valley Life Center, which is the church that sent us to Utah. And so, uh, yeah. And the way Daniel does ministry, and uh, he's learned, learned it from Pastor Jack and others as well, but he has really given us this DNA. So a lot of what we do and why we do it is uh, because of the influence of Daniel and the Coastlands and uh, just the ministry that we have been involved with. And he's uh, written many books uh, that are awesome books. As a matter of fact, there are some books available uh, in the lobby after the service if you're interested. Uh, Embracing Grace, which is the topic he's going to be talking about today. Uh, He's also planted many, many churches, and he travels around the world uh, speaking uh, to churches and church leadership. But the important thing for us to know is that that he is a man of God. And uh, we we testify to that as people that have known him for decades, that he is a man who seeks after God and puts God first. And he knows the word of God, and he can give us an understanding of the word of God in very plain and simple language that we can accept and receive and be transformed by because the Holy Spirit lives in him, and he is listening to God as he speaks. So we are thrilled to have him here. Can you welcome Dr. Daniel Brown? I didn't oh, call yeah. you great grandfather today. Yeah, so thank you very much. You know, you're, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, the, probably the best way that I could be introduced is he really likes to talk, and that's why I'm here. Thank you very much for the privilege of uh, sharing with you about the Word of God. Uh, I kind of, I kind of got tricked into being a preacher person. It's not like when I was a little kid. I'm thinking, oh man, I can't wait. When I grow up, I want to be a preacher guy. It was like the furthest thing from my mind. But when I was at the university, I I, kind of got um, a taste of what happens when you take from the Word of God, just something that you're reading on your own, and you just take this this scripture and you apply it to someone's life, almost like a like a pharmacist would, uh, you know, they take that little whatever it is and they they parcel out the pills, you know, uh, you dispense the medicine is what I was trying to say. And it was just remarkable to see how, wow, this stuff is miraculous. The Word of God is alive, and what it can do in someone's life when you share it with them is just beyond anything that all the combined human wisdom of the world could ever effect. And having been uh, exposed to that experience, I found that my thoughts about doing other things got more and more faint. And pretty soon, the only thing that I could think about doing is just walking around and not in a weird sort of way, walking up to a stranger, here's a verse for you, nothing weird like that. (laughs) But just, you know, as a conversation's going on, my mind is, uh, well, let's don't go there, but one of the things I would say about my mind, it's like if you've ever been to the ocean, ocean, that's a really big body of water that's not quite as salty as the nearby ocean. Anyway, if you've ever been to the beach and you started digging 
you know, kids know this, you start digging in the sand, eventually you get down to the water and what happens? The sides of your little, little hole start caving in. And that's a good picture of my mind. Not a lot in there. But Scripture seems to flood in my mind as I'm just having conversations with people. And so I just share those verses, and it's amazing things that happen. Well, as I was sitting there worshiping, I was just reminded of how, uh, please feel sorry for me, how complicated it is for somebody who's trying to share a particular truth because there's so much of the Bible that relates to that one little truth. And one of the very first lessons that you learn about good Bible study is that any one verse in the Bible is always supposed to be interpreted in light of the whole of the Word of God. And additionally, any verse that you look at, it has to be viewed in light of what is ultimately true of God Himself. And if you just kind of reach in and pull up at random a verse and, and look at it and try to explain it or just in that context... You, you can be open to a little bit of mistake and error. So I like, um, I just like sharing lots and lots and lots of, of Bible. So I'm going to be getting to a pretty important text a little bit later that I think will be of great interest to all of you. But the, the scriptures that were coming into my mind before I began uh, sharing in earnest what's on my heart... Um, One is is found in Romans 5, and he basically says this, that now, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Now, I could give you a dozen other verses that explain to us how this great justification has happened. And when I use a word justified, it's important that I define it. Uh, Justified would just be our, our expression, declared innocent. And it's what happens at the end of a trial, not what the defense attorney is saying, not what the person themselves is saying, I didn't do it, but what the the judge bangs the gavel or the jury stands up and says, we find this person, the judge with the gavel, and if the word is innocent, that means you're justified. But it also means the trial already took place. And you and I have great peace with God. Because whatever the conflict was, whatever the tension, whatever the wrong in between us and Him, and how our sins have created this huge chasm between us and God, and no man with any amount of effort can stretch across that chasm. Whatever the opposition, frustration, uh, conflict between us and God, we who have faith in Jesus Christ, who believe that when he was hanging on the cross and said, it is finished, in the original language, didn't mean it's kind of just beginning, do your best. (laughs) He meant it's like a done deal. And when I have faith in that work on the cross of Jesus Christ, then... I am justified before God. That means the trial has already taken place. And I am not on trial for the rest of my life. Okay, makes sense? Yeah. You know, there's a great hymn that says, uh, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. 
And I must confess that when I'm talking to people, my, the refrain in my mind is, oh, for a thousand tongues to talk a thousand things. I just have a lot on my heart. One other scripture, if you would allow me. It's, it's found in the book of Jeremiah. And the interesting story of what's gone on is that this is a group of bad boys and girls, uh, the nation of Israel, who have blown it again for the countless time. They have blown it so badly that God himself says, look, I can't restrain the consequences of your wrongdoing any longer. And so you're going to go into captivity for a limited amount of time so that I can teach you things and straighten out stuff in your heart because you're very prone to wandering. Your heart just is like the wheels of your heart are out of alignment. What can I say? And if you let go of the the steering wheel, it's into the center divider every time. And I want to adjust your life because I have a long-term future and interest in you. And so you're going to be in captivity for 70 years. And don't listen to anybody that tells you, oh, it's actually only going to be four years. It's going to be 70 years. Okay? You're in trouble. You're being grounded for 70 years. Okay? Go to your room. But God, of course, assures them and says, I won't forget that you're there, and I've got plans for when we get out of this. So anyway, we're talking about bad boys and girls who have been, um, their, their capital city, Jerusalem, has been ransacked by the Babylonians. And it's a vivid image of what happens in our own life because uh, in those days, warfare, they didn't have like artillery shells to lob in. And the way that you overtook a city was to build what we call siege mounds. Siege mounds. Try to repeat that seven times. Siege mounds. Anyways, it was a bunch of, uh, of, of, of um, expendable soldiers who would just keep moving their way forward building dirt until the pile of dirt got to be high enough that the the real guys could just walk up the ramp and step over the edge of the city and kill everybody. Kind of a gross image, but that's the idea. And Jerusalem had these siege mounds built up against it because the people of Jerusalem, they brought it upon themselves. They violated the way of God. And because they said, hey, we don't want you to be our king, God says, have it your way, Burger King. And they then ended up being ruled over by some other uh, kings, other bad guys. But the image that was in my mind is so particular. It says that these people in Jerusalem, when they saw the siege mounds rising around them, they frantically tried to defend themselves against the consequences of their own wrongdoing. And so they started to dismantle their very homes, places where they lived. They ripped apart their dwellings and carried the rocks and the bricks and tried to mound them up on the edge of their wall, trying to outpace the adversary that was building up the dirt on the outside. And these poor people, in their frantic effort to kind of make it all okay, and I'm really sorry about what I've done, but here, I think if I, if I try a little harder, maybe I can, I can forestall the inevitable consequence. And what they actually did was to strip the city of any livable place. It's a ruin, not just because of what the enemy would do, but because of what they tried to do to defend themselves. Now that to me is like a picture of a person. And how many of us have faced consequences of our own? We, we, we brought it upon ourselves, And in some well-meaning effort to kind of tamp it down and to make a promise, I'll, I'll, okay, I'll never do that again. 
we're willing to forfeit so much of the very place that God wants us to, to have, our, our very person. We rip it apart trying to defend ourselves, and there is nothing but an empty shell behind us. Now, it is into this group of people that God speaks what was on my heart to say. He says, I promise you this, that the day is going to come when I'm going to effect a new covenant with you. We're going to have a new arrangement. And it's no longer going to be that you're going to have to obey all of these things on the outside. I myself am going to place my spirit inside of you. I'm going to dwell among you because I love being your God. And the really good news to you is that your sins and your lawless deeds I'm not going to remember anymore. Well, I'm thinking that's the kind of God that I want to follow and serve. But he goes a bit further to say that I'm going to manifest my power. Do you like that effect? My power. Hmm? in the presence so that the nations round about you are going to be just like freaked out, afraid when they see what I can do. And here's how I'm going to manifest my power. I'm going to take that strip city of yours that now there's nothing good left and there's no happiness and no joy at all. And I, by my great power and my outstretched hand, I'm going to convert that desolate ghost town into the most spectacularly joyous and great city on the face of the earth. That, my friends, is how God shows His handiwork. To take blighted, broken, emptied humans like us and not to dangle like a dog biscuit in front of us. If you work a little harder, maybe you'll get a goodie. <laughs> but to say, I myself will transform your broken condition. Amen. Now, that would be a good point to stop my sermon, but sorry, not going to happen. I just want you to understand this broad context of God's passionate desire to do you good all the days of your life. Now, I will say this, that, that you know, I get a chance to travel all over the world. I, I pastored for a number of years, and about seven years ago, I turned my church over to a younger, uh, younger minister, and now I, I travel and try to encourage pastors and, and churches. So I get exposed to many different countries, many different cultures, and, and so forth. And one of the things that I've noticed is that regardless of which part of the world I find myself in, there's always sort of, uh, well... People are sincere in their desire to want to kind of reconnect with God. There, there are some who say, fooey on it all. But most people want to be good. They want to get things right with God. And virtually every culture in the world agrees on a couple of basic truths. One of which is that God is good. He's holy. He's righteous. He's pure. He's whatever words you want to put in there. God is like the way that God is supposed to be, which is, you know, why is God? He's, he's, I mean, that's it. That's holy. That's right. 
And we, on the other hand, as humans, are exactly not that. (laughs) Whatever it is that he is good, we are, well, the opposite, which would be bad. If he is unholy, see if you get this, we are unholy. Yeah, fantastic, you get it. Everybody in the world and every religious enterprise agrees on those two things, that God is here and we are here. And so the question that every person who is sincere, I think, has is, how do I get from here to there? Not just, not just a traveling of a distance or a space, but how can I, as a, as a singularly unholy person, how can I possibly ever be holy? I who am riddled with unrighteousness, I who have made all sorts of mistakes, how could I ever reach this place of perfection? And regardless, again, of the, of the part of the world I'm in, there's always three options that get presented. The, the, the first option is that, okay, if you want to get from where you are to where God wants you, you've got to do it all on your own. And you can do that through meditation, through self-improvement. You can do whatever. But, but sorry about this, sweetness. You are on your own. Do the best that you can. Jump as high as you can and see if you can ever make it there. But you've got to do it all by yourself. There are other people who say, well, it's kind of a, it's kind of a partnership. You do your part. God will do his. And if the two of those are kind of up to snuff, then whew, somehow the bridge works. You know, I don't know if you climb on God's back or he climbs on yours, but somehow between the two of you, if you stand on one another's shoulders, you'll be able to reach and get the cookies in the jar. But there's another option. It's an option, I have to tell you before I even mention it, that seems too good to be true. But it is the option where God says, I've actually been watching you for many centuries. I don't think there's much hope of you doing it on your own. I've seen the way every time you try to partner up with me, you are the weak link in this chain. A plus for effort. But actual performance, you know, you're like, your wheels constantly go flat. I cannot drive with you. So he says, actually, he looks at his arm and says, do you know, my arm is not so short that it can't save. I am a God who, who on my own can do for you what you can't do for me. And the essence, dear friends, of the relationship that God offers to us, that Jesus offers to us. He names himself as the author and the finisher of our faith. He's not a God who says, okay, tell you what, I'll get the ball rolling. Now come follow me, come follow me. Do the same motion. I'll start it, and you've got to keep running that thing going. And if it stops, rolling! No, no. He says, I start a good work in you, I finish it. And the kind of transformation that I want to bring in your life of whether, whether the term is to be justified, bang, the gavel goes down, I'm innocent after the trial is over. Or another term that you know, you've, you've heard before where, where uh, God says that he's going to save us. To be saved, what it literally means, the best image is like you've been in a prisoner of war camp. 
right? And you get saved, you get rescued when the, when the special forces people come, and you get saved, you get out. And when God saves you, guess what? You're out of the prisoner of war camp. And this God who went to all the trouble of saving you and me is not as the helicopter you know, uh, goes away, doesn't turn to us and say, you better behave or we're taking you back. <laughs> he doesn't run a shuttle service. Escaping people from the prisoner. Ah, you weren't good enough. We're taking you back. Okay, you got to make... No, no, no. Whom the Son sets free is free. This is the God we're talking about. Now, I'm going to bring you to a, uh, a passage of Scripture. If you want, you can start flipping in your Bible to the book of James. It'll be a while before we get there. I just wanted to give you hope that there is an end to this message, okay? So, it's an old preacher trick. You tell them where you're going to take them, and time disappears for a few minutes as you keep talking whatever you want to say. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. So in this, in this passage, James, that we'll come to, you're, you're going to hear two words that if you don't understand them well, uh, it can kind of mislead you as you're reading the passage. One of those words is works. Works. Okay. Works simply means something that I do in response to a law of some kind, a covenant of some kind. So if there is a commandment that says, you know, uh, you should always sit in the front row of church, then those people who sit in the front row of church are doing a good work. See, they responded to something they were told to do, and they did it. That is a work. That is a work. It is a it is a thing that gets done, a prompting that you follow. When you do it, you have done a work. The other term that we're going to see in a moment is, is the word law. And what many people don't realize is that the, 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 the scriptures talk extensively about two laws. But because most of us only think in terms of the law of Moses that is also called the law of commands, the law of ordinances, the law of physical requirements. It's what we're, we're thinking of, Ten Commandments, etc., the law of Moses. Because most of us are only thinking of that law, whenever we see a word like works, we instantly assume works of a law, but we jump to thinking works of that law, the law of Moses. In other words, being obedient to what Moses said we're supposed to do. But there is another law that's talked about in the New Testament, hinted at in that passage of Jeremiah that I told you, that God is going to establish this new covenant, the day will come, and part of my covenant, part of my law, is going to be that I forgive and forget your sins. Part of that law is going to be that I myself will dwell in your midst. And instead of a temple that you have to go to in Jerusalem, I will take up residence in your heart. 
so that you, as a daughter of God, son of God, you become a temple of my Holy Spirit. This covenant that is spoken of again and again and again, that the Bible says that that the men of old who were writing the scriptures long to understand what, what, is, what is this that I'm, I'm sensing? What is being hinted at in my soul that, that I know God is going to do? And they made diligent search trying to figure out, I know there's something going on, I just don't quite know what it is. And that's because in the great plan of God, he, he didn't reveal this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. He simply had these patriarchs pointing to that new covenant that would be established. One of the reasons that we call a whole section of the Bible the New Testament, another way of saying it, the new covenant, the new arrangement that God has made that established his dealings and his relationship with us. This law is called the law of Christ or the law of faith, the law of belief, the law of love. And when you, once you spot it in the New Testament, you'll be able to see how frequently the law of Moses is kind of contrasted with the law of Christ. Because a good chunk of the New Testament was written to men and women who were coming out of a religious mindset. They were under the law of Moses. But they came, became people like Paul himself who writes to the Philippians and he says, Man, if you want to talk about a, 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 a religious guy, I am exhibit A. I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, I was trained in all the ancestral traditions. And when I first started hearing about this Jesus Christ and faith stuff, man, I was against it. I persecuted. I put these people in jail. But oh my goodness, now that I understand the faith and the righteousness that comes as a result of belief in Christ and the work that He does, all of those religious accomplishments, all of those good works, all of those abilities to be obedient and everything like that, I really catch on now that in the new economy of God, those amount to nothing. And if you want to say to me, Man, you have lost it. You have given up your security. You have given up your future because you are placing your trust in Christ alone. He says, I'm willing to suffer the loss of all things for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. So because the New Testament to a large extent, is written to people who are coming out from under that law, uh, the writers will very often contrast the two of them. Okay. Okay. That was another preacher trick. You think that when I look at my watch, it means, oh, he's concerned about the time. So before we come to James, I've only got three other little verses that I want to share with you very quickly, of course, and then we're going to get to the main point of it all. So if we could put up on the screen first Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Uh, I find that in my conversations with a lot of of people, especially those who don't believe um, what I believe, is it coming up on the the screen? Will it come up? I'll keep talking until it does. Okay, yeah. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) Anyway, I find in my discussions with with people that they often want to focus on just a few verses 
because they have sort of ready-made arguments for those verses. And my thought is, okay, I'll, I'll, I don't care. If you, if you don't want to talk about those three, I've got 300 others of them that I could bring up to you. And I just thought it would be useful for all of us if you could see some of the, these scriptures that make it profoundly clear that our salvation, that our justification before God is not on the basis of the works of the law of Moses. So I'm going to punctuate that because of the passage that we'll one day be coming to. For we maintain, as Paul says to the Romans, that a man, a person, is justified, declared innocent, apart from the law. That word apart, it means apart. Having nothing whatsoever to do with the law. Completely separate from the law. And we who name Jesus Christ as our Savior receive the pronouncement, the verdict, innocent, having nothing whatsoever to do with the law of Moses. Okay, the next scripture, told you these would be fast, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, by grace. Grace is what God does without any regard whatsoever to what you do. Grace, you have been saved through faith. Not good behavior, through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God to make sure that nobody boasts. Now imagine from God's perspective, right? Let's say fast forward to the end of time and he's collecting everybody. They're they're coming to be with him, you know, forever. Can you imagine how kind of like weird it would be for someone to strut in that room? That's me strutting. Uh, (laughs) You might not have known. You're thinking, what, what, what was happening to his body? It's me strutting. It's okay. <laughs> anyway, you know, with an air of, of sophistication and, uh, oh, man, uh, where, well, yeah, I don't mind saying that I really, <clears throat> I did a lot to get myself here. <laughs> what? I'm thinking, you're going to boast in the presence Boasting doesn't have to be beating your chest saying, I am wonderful. (laughs) Boasting is just taking credit for something you didn't do. And God wants to eliminate boasting so that we understand I'm here because of a gift, the gift of God. And simply because I believed not because I managed to be quite remarkable on the face of the earth. Okay, one more scripture. Galatians chapter 2. Man, okay, nevertheless, knowing this, that a man is not justified by the works of the law of Moses, okay, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we who have believed in Christ, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law will no flesh be justified. Having made that case, I now want to take you to one of the Bible passages that creates a lot of confusion for people, and it's found in the book of James, chapter 2. So if you've been going through a page at a time looking for James, congratulations, you're probably there. And in this, in this passage, let me now make sure I... I can find it too. Okay. 
in this uh, passage that often in conversation will get reduced down and summarized to a simple statement, faith without works is dead. There's two verses, if you could put both of those up from James, that are kind of on either, they're the bookends of the whole passage. One in verse 14, uh, where he says, come on guys, think about it. What real use is it if someone has faith but has no works? Can that kind of faith save him? And this is the word of God. And I know in many of your life situations, even as it was punctured into mine over and over again, a little bit confusing because so many verses that make it abundantly clear it is not by the works of the law that a person gets saved. And yet you read this verse and it says, faith without works basically is is dead. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. And if you aren't aware of all the other verses, it can kind of upset you a little bit to think, well, now, wait a second. Is my faith in Christ by itself not enough? And there are even people who would say, it's no, it's not good enough, because in this passage, you know, even the demons believe in God. And if you don't, you know, they don't say this, but if you don't have better works, you are a demon. They don't say that, but it's kind of the implication So don't just think that faith can save you. You need to do more works of the law. Now, unfortunately, we in our own minds and other well-meaning people take a few huge jumps to presume, number one, that this is talking about the works of the law. Remember what I told you, that a work is a response to, uh, a kind of, I'm prompted by, a law. But there are two laws. The law of Moses, with all of its ordinances and commands, over 600 of them, that basically say, be good. And the law of faith, which primarily has one commandment, and that is to believe. So I'm going to do some little Bible study with you to show you how it cannot possibly mean faith without works is dead. It cannot possibly mean that we're referring to the law of Moses. And the way that we will do that is to look at the two examples that James gives us. He's now trying to prove his point. He says, well, well, let me explain what I'm saying to you. And he offers us two characters from the Bible. The first is Abraham. And he says, Abraham was justified or, or advanced along in God according to his works. And the work that we're, he's talking about, I'll tell you in just a moment, but let me refresh your memory That when God uh, first spoke into Abraham's life, he made Abraham an amazing promise. A promise, not a command, a promise. He says, I am going to use you to bless the entire earth, and I'm going to give you a son. Now at the time, (laughs) he was old. I'm telling you, he had been collecting Social Security for a long time, right? And uh, the Bible says that kind of considered his own flesh and I'm just telling you Bible. 
and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Okay, she was long past those times when heat flashes. She was long past all of that. Okay. He's thinking, but he didn't waver in unbelief because he thought to himself, well, after all, who's making me the promise? It's the God who can call into being what doesn't exist. He believed a promise. And because he believed that promise, God says, I make you righteous. And friends, that's the turning point of the Old Testament. And that covenant with Abraham, where God says, I will will give you what you cannot get for yourself. I promise you, I will do this for you. That became and ever since has been the basis upon which righteousness is bestowed on people. So when God is holy and I'm not, and I want to know how can I get to that place, God says, I'll tell you, it's very simple. Believe what I say to you. If you believe, I'll make you righteous. Now, Abraham and Sarah, you know, they... He was pretty excited about getting this word, Sarah. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We got some religious duties to do. And we don't know how many years like that lasted until she got a serious headache, you know. (laughs) And I think at some point they must have been worried, oh, maybe, maybe this isn't going to happen. I know what we need to do. She's saying, I know what we'll do. Try my maid. Because it wasn't happening. And all of us are vulnerable to the, maybe we need to help God keep his promise. And so they tried helping, and sure enough, there was a child that was born. But it wasn't a child of faith. It was a child of flesh. And God made it very clear that flesh and blood cannot inherit the promises. And when I, God says, when I promise something, I do it. Get this? I promise, I do. And just so you will always remember this, Abe, before I actually cause your wife to conceive, I'd like you to remove a little bit of yourself. Basically, I'd like you to be circumcised. Mm-hmm. And little boys, ever since, have been wondering, why, oh God, such a peculiar mark of our relationship with you? Well, if you understand the story, you get the point. God says, I want to remove all flesh from the very place where the life seed would issue forth. And so that you'll always remember, this is my covenant with you. It's not me promising, and you having a couple of bowls of Wheaties in the morning. (laughs) Okay, sweetie, here I come. (laughs) Let me make this perfectly clear. This is not a partnership. I 
promise, I do. I don't want or need your help. Well, after Isaac is born, now I'm getting back to James. After Isaac is born, God must have said to him, we don't know all the details, but somewhere along the line, God must have said to him, Abraham, you saw the way that I was able to give you a son without just just miraculously... And so now I'm going to ask you, will you give your son back to me? And if you give him back to me, will you still believe that I will give you a son and you will have an offspring that will bless the entire world? And maybe you can relate to that. There have been times when you feel as though God has given you the answer that you were hoping for, praying for. And then something happens, and that turns out not to be quite the answer. And it's a real challenge in faith to continue to put our hope in the promise giver rather than to let our hope settle down onto what we thought was the answer that God gave us. And Abraham must have said to God, I I still believe you, and so I will take my son and I will offer him back to you. People who say that this story is an example of faith plus the works of the law miss two really important points. The first is that at the time that Abraham was going through all of this, there was no such thing as the law of Moses. Do you know that the law of Moses wouldn't even be given for another 430 years? And at the time that Abraham is prepared to offer his son back, the only commands that God has given. Don't eat the fruit. Okay, scratch that one. We already messed that one up. Don't murder anybody. And don't eat meat with blood. Full stop. That's all the commands. Everything else of God's dealings with people... Up until this point in time, it was all promises that he made. uh, Places that he opened up to them. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, go for it. Not commands, promises. So Abraham, doing whatever he was going to do, couldn't possibly have been doing a work of the law of Moses because there was no such thing. Point number two Look at what it was that he did. And I'm going to be sensitive to the fact that not everyone is old yet. Good for you. If your head is still the largest part of your body, you're young. You know the story, right? Abram says, come on, son, we're going to go on a camping trip takes him up on the mountain, lays him out, ties him up, takes out a knife, and is prepared to commit infanticide. I've traveled a lot. I never have encountered a culture that celebrates people who take the lives of their own children. This is not a moral act. 
to steal away the life of your own child? This is not a high watermark of good behavior. In fact, if you read the scriptures carefully, you'll discover that one of the primary reasons that God says, I do not want you to be like the nations that are round about you, is because their practices of child sacrifice were so abhorrent to God. A God who has a son, a God who calls us to be sons and daughters of his, it is inconceivable that we would worship him by just sacrificing our children. As Abraham is prepared to keep trusting God, Abraham is going to take an action not because there was a commandment from the law of Moses that says, Thou shalt kill thy firstborn but because he believed a promise. A promise of what God said God was going to do. He was willing to take a step in faith because he believed. Not a step of obedience to the law of Moses. There are two laws. The law of commands, where God says, this is what I want you to do. And the law of faith, where he says, this is what I want you to believe that I'm going to do. And friends, you who've walked with Jesus, you understand this in a maybe smaller way in your own life. We sang a song about it. Lord, lead me to a place where my faith has no borders. I want to go where you ask me to go. And this is the great thrill of being a daughter and a son of God. We are led by the Spirit. But primarily, friends, we're led by promises, by promptings, by whispers of God saying, do this, don't do that. Not commands but a promise of what he will do if we'll just just trust him and believe. The second example that James gives to us, Rahab, the harlot. Sorry. Again, I'm going to be sensitive to the varied ages that are here, and I can't quite go on and on and on as much as I want to about that. But uh, what is the poor girl's name, last name? I mean, wouldn't you think after all these centuries they'd leave her alone? I mean, you know, everybody develops a reputation. And probably she didn't even do very much. You know how girls can talk in high school. And before long she was known as the... No, actually she was Rahab, the lady of the night. <laughs> the woman with an establishment. She didn't work out of her own apartment. There was a place, and when the spies came into the city of Jericho, now again, they're good, good boys, but, but they, they thought to themselves, huh, where could we go to hear things? I know. We'll go to the local establishment where men are known to talk freely. <laughs> so they get to this place, 
you know, the, the soldiers come and Rahab has to hide them under some stuff on the roof. And, uh, and so they're going to escape and go away. But don't forget what Rahab said to them. She says, hey, listen, I know you guys are going to win. The city is going to be destroyed. I want to be on your side. Can I be one of you people? And they gave her a promise. Her promise, the promise was famous. If you take this red cord and tie it around your window that faces on the city wall, and if you stay inside under this, with this red cord, then you will be saved in all of your household. Now, of course, it's a beautiful picture of what would later be the Passover, or what had been the Passover, the blood over the mantle, of us living under the protection of Christ, our Savior. Beautiful picture. But don't forget the actual story. This is a woman who has been making her living in a not completely appropriate manner. Is that safe enough to say? I don't have any idea why my hands are doing what they're doing right now, so I'm just going to stop that. (laughs) So, so she's not, she's not exactly, but, but she says, will you, will, you, will you save me? And they said, yes, we will. As long as you take a step and do according to a promise. I've read the, uh, the, the law of Moses. There is nothing in there about, you know, when you're kind of changing professions, make sure you indicate that by tying a red cord around a window. There's nothing in there about red cords. It wasn't a command that she was responding to. It was a promise. Now, this part of the story I cannot prove to you, but you can't disprove it, so. (laughs) I just wonder, after she made this promise... Did she change her line of work or hire temporary help? (laughs) Now, please don't be offended yet. There is a point to all of this. (laughs) Because, you know, good people that we are, we just presume, well, of course she realized the error of her ways, and when she was going to be a part of the people of Israel, she cleaned up her act. Mm -hmm. But let's do the math. By the time the, the spies worked their way back to the original uh, camp. It was probably maybe two, three days. When they get back there, just in time for the announcement, okay, guys, we're all going to get circumcised. And I don't know exact, because I was circumcised as a, as a baby, I don't know how long it takes to be circumcised and still be able to grab a sword with any authority. But, <laughs> ah, ah, you know what I'm, 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 I'm guessing it's at least another week. Maybe two for us wimps, okay. And then they had to march back to the city, and you know, then they marched around the city for a week. So if you add it all up, we're talking 20 days, maybe 25 days, and we know that the whole city was shut up because of fear, and I'm just saying the tension probably was getting fairly high in the city, which can be good for certain kinds of businesses. Now, probably at this point, I should, I, I hope I'm not embarrassing you. I, I, I was sharing this story in, uh, in Switzerland amongst some friends of mine. They speak Swiss German. And I didn't realize that their vocabulary was not quite as extensive as the English vocabulary. I don't know what that says about us or says about them. 
But there's only uh, one term, at least, that my translator would use for the profession that Rahab was in. And I had a lot of jet lag, and I was kind of happy. And so I just, I, I, I shared several terms. Rahab the, Rahab the, Rahab, Rahab the, Rahab. And my poor translator, he just, he was a little stiff anyway, Swiss German guy, a little stiff. And every time I say Rahab the whatever, he, same word, same word. I'm, I've got like 15 of them. He, same word. And you know, have you ever seen somebody where they're so uncomfortable, their neck like is almost broken? They're like, oh, steam is coming out. And so uh, the pastor in the front row was giving me every signal, stop, known to mankind. So I finally said, oh, I'm so sorry. Ah, really, this is very embarrassing, isn't it? It's like, oh, should we change the subject and perhaps talk about Ruth and Boaz? Oh, the pastor was so relieved. The translator just like, yes. And you could feel everyone in the room lean back. I'll leave it to you to decide why they had been leaning forward. But they all leaned back a little bit of sigh of relief. I said, I know. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. It's such a beautiful story. You can glean in my field. I said, by the way, have you ever wondered where Bo got all the money to buy all of that property? And would it surprise you to discover that his mama is none other than Rahab? And everyone just like collapsed. (laughs) Whoops. Whoops. I'm sorry. It's true. Now, okay. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. That really Rahab wasn't like a regular pattern in her life. It really was just one or two mistakes that she made. And then she got a reputation. How then do you explain the chunk of change that she was able to take with her? Okay, maybe, 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 maybe. I doubt it, but maybe. She was really good at investing her meager earnings in the stock market. Because everything in Jericho fell down. And whatever money Rahab had, she got from work. I'm not arguing for legalizing anything. I'm just saying that Rahab was not responding to the commands of Moses. She was responding to a promise. And she took a step based on the promise because she believed. And friends, what James 2 is trying to say to us, just as he uses the example, if somebody comes to you and they're hungry and you say, Hey, praise God! (laughs) Hope you're filled! It doesn't really help them. God wants to use you as a ministry agent that helps a lot of other people. And so when he gives you a promise, when he whispers things and talks to you about where he wants you to go, what he wants you to do, if you have faith, then also take a step, respond to a promise 
not respond to a command. Faith with no response is dead. It's meaningless. It doesn't do anything. So what then, and I close with this, what then is the work of God? And we're told in John chapter 5, I think it's verse 26, this is the work of God, that you would believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior. That is our faith plus works. God bless you. Thank you, Daniel. You know, we want to respond to this today because this is a great message, isn't it? What a great truth that there is nothing that we can do in ourselves. Aren't you glad? Raise your hand if you're glad that there is nothing that you can do in yourselves. It is all by God's grace and his promise to us. So we want to respond to that promise today. Why don't you close your eyes? I want to address two groups of people today. The first group are, are people that have been walking in condemnation. They know Jesus, and they've been struggling with things in their lives, and they've been walking in condemnation, in guilt, because they have that finger pointing at them, and it's not Jesus. It's something else. And today, the Lord wants to set you free from that accusing finger so that you could receive a new reality, a new level of God's grace. We have the base camp team come forward. If that's you today, if you've been struggling with something in your life and and it has weighed you down, today, God wants to set you free. Do you think that's true? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if that's you. Good. Good. Be bold today. God wants to set some people free today. Who else wants to be set free from condemnation and guilt? Lord God, right now we just pray for those that hands are raised. We thank you that, that Lord, it, it is by your word, by your grace that we are forgiven. And our works are not a part of that at least the works of the law of Moses. And so, Lord God, we just pray that people would be get set free in the name of Jesus. Condemnation would be destroyed in the name of Jesus. Guilt would be rebuked in the name of Jesus, the one who died on the cross for our sins. And right now, that spirit of religion that has so many people captivated would be just rebuked in the name of Jesus Christ. If you agree with that, would you just say yes to the Lord? Yes, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Set me free. Set me free. This spirit that is rampant in our society, and especially in Utah, of religion, we rebuke then in the name of Jesus Christ, and we proclaim grace. We proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ and the law of faith. In Jesus' name. And I want to give you an opportunity, those of you who don't know Jesus yet, or you knew Jesus and you've, you've walked away 
from him. And you've maybe be out of discouragement. I sense this from the Lord that some of you have walked away from the Lord out of discouragement because of that finger pointing at you. So today, God wants you to know that he is calling you back to him, not based on your works, but based on his work. Amen. If that is you, if you want to ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, to forgive your sins and to lead your life, to be set free from the burden that is upon all men in this world. The wages of sin is guilt, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And that free gift is for you today. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand throughout. Good, good. Anyone else? Just want to... Anyone here who needs Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior today and wants to return, amen. I see that hand in the back. Amen. We're going to pray right now, and I just want to invite everyone in the congregation to pray along with those that have their hands raised who are praying this maybe for the first time. We're going to, we're going to pray this together. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord Jesus, I know I have sinned. And it is not by what I do that I am approved. But it is because of what you did on the cross. You took my sin upon yourself. And now I am forgiven. I receive that forgiveness. Fill me with your spirit. Thank you for being the leader of my life my Savior, my healer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I just want to encourage you. I know that the Lord was speaking to a lot of us today. He certainly spoke to me. Our base camp team is here to really spend some time with you and minister with you. Please take advantage of that opportunity. And God bless you. Can we give uh, Pastor Daniel another round of hands? Thank you, Daniel. God bless you, everyone. Have a great day.